0: first mention in any email that I have about a desire to start my own podcast was from February 2 of 2019. It was a totally non-important email, but it indicated that I was thinking about starting a podcast. I don't know where that thought came from or when that thought came to me, but apparently in my emails, it appears as if it's Athena fully formed bursting forward from my head The first episode of this show was from March of 2019. It was 12 minutes and 24 seconds long, and it featured a bike racer from the Mid-Atlantic named Erin Bougie. I asked her five completely random questions about life and she answered them. I can remember it distinctly because I was sitting in a Hampton Inn hotel in Williamsburg, Virginia on a Saturday morning. That was so sad. That I have that specific of a memory about something that happened in 2019. That still is, by the way, the shortest episode of the show, 12 minutes and 24 seconds long. The longest episode of the show, however, is one hour and 28 minutes long. And it is absolutely not an episode that features Adam Meyerson. It's the Thanksgiving episode that Lily Williams and I put together in November of 2020. We, ha- we, cobbled together 15 or 16 different small clips from people who had been on the show expressing what they were thankful for in November of 2020. And we just riffed off of them. It was probably the least immaculately produced episode, meaning I had no idea where we were going. We had a general theory of who would come next and we just literally played the clip and then talked about it. And it was absolutely way more fun than it should have been. As far as numbers are concerned, the youngest guest of this show by far is Mays Winbush. She was 15 at the time in July of 2020. She has now become an almost full-fledged adult bike racer, just kicking all sorts of butt for the Virginia Blue Ridge 2024 team. The winner of the most F bombs dropped on the show, and the reason why I discovered the explicit label on Libsyn, which is the tool that I use to upload things, is Steve Cullen from the February 2020 Cleaner, Faster, Better episode, where I discovered what it is to be a part of ButcherBox, and it kind of pushed me in an entirely different direction for this whole. Motley adventure of a show. The most individual guests we've ever had on the show are four. It's from Life and Cycling in the Time of Coronavirus, in which Adam Pulford and a whole bunch of other people got together to talk about the really awful predictions that I had for how short the COVID-19 pandemic was going to be. I think at one point in time, I said it was going to be over by July. That's why I'm not a medical professional, and you should not trust me about medical advice ever, ever, ever. We have had 100 episodes of this show, 100 episodes, the vast majority of them talking about criterium racing. The most popular show of all time is the show that Adam Myerson, Peter Olenichek, and I did about mentorship. It beats out just barely by three downloads the other episode that I had done with Adam Myerson called It Changes Nothing from May of 2021. I think that people probably Google search the free Britney episode and start listening to it, not having a clue that it's a podcast about bike racing. And for some odd reason, I decided to call it free Britney because it's been listened to way more times than I would ever dream that an episode would be listened to. The person who's been on the show the most. Out of all guests, and then we have to exclude Alan and Celine because they are not just guests, they are our correspondents of the show, but is Adam Mills, our wonderful friend from Source Endurance. Adam has been on the show more times than I can probably count. And he's going to be on the show again on the next episode when we talk about pro bike racing and are we pro yet? There's a lot of amazing things that have come up in the last 100 episodes. There's probably been way too much talk about Boise, for example, and way too much talk about, I don't know, weird facts that I could come up with about music from the 1990s. Whoa, hold on a second. I don't think I've introduced myself yet, and this has been going on for how long now? My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterion Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. Can I tell you how much fun it is to have people repeat Your show's catchphrase back to you in the middle of a bike race when my heart rate is like 180 beats and I am staring very much at the derailleur in front of me and somebody goes, oh, you're the guy who does the show about life lived one corner at a time. It's wonderful. Please, please keep doing it. I'm so looking forward to 2023 we are a part of the wide angle podium network of shows wideanglepodium.com is the website that you can go to to find about the best in independent cycling media all of the good shows all of the great shows that appear on the wide angle podium are there for your listening we've got the grodio covering gravel racing in the united states and potentially abroad we've got cyclocross radio which covers. Everything related to cyclocross and sometimes mountain biking, which is always interesting and entertaining. We've got the Slow Ride podcast. I was a guest on that show once. I don't know if you know that. I was. Most people thought I was Spencer Howe, but no, I really was a legitimate guest on the show. It was not Spencer just doing an act. And then we have Nowhere Fast, a show about going nowhere on bikes that are attached to trainers in your house, but also fabulously entertaining and probably very appropriate since it's now not daylight savings time anymore. And it's basically like the apocalypse every time I leave my office at five o'clock and it's dark. Okay, wideanglepodium.com, your source for the full bevy of shows that we have available on the network. Go there, subscribe, become a member and help support this content creator owned effort. We are brought to you this week by our good friends at Source Endurance. Source-e.net is your home for the best in endurance coaching in America on the Internet. In Canada, for a matter of fact, I I just love my Canadian friends and the listeners of this show from Canada. We have had a Canadian on the show in Maggie Coles Lister. We've probably had other Canadians. We just don't know it. We've had three Aussies two Kiwis, and one Brit. Extra credit for whoever names all of those people. Go to source-e.net and find out about the full service of material that they have available for you from endurance athletics to coaching, to mentorship, to training camps like the Belgian waffle ride survival camp, to nutritionist services, to just being basically a therapist for me. Thank you, Zach Allison. You're the best. These last two weeks when you've been on vacation have been grueling and I've been forced to talk to other people about bike racing, other people from San Diego about bike racing. And now those people are tired of me and are directing me back to you. So Zach, I will be reaching out to you again. Source-e.net. Use the promo code CriteriumNation, all one word for $50 off your first month of services. This episode is written and produced by you, the fans. We took your responses and we made a show. This is going to be exciting. It is virtually unscripted, and it is just exactly what I was hoping for, for the 100th episode of the show. My very good friends, Celine Oberholzer and Alan Schroeder are here to help celebrate this monumentous event and to help us learn more about what you guys find interesting. We're doing that and we're doing it right now. The hardest part about starting one of these episodes is figuring out who to throw to first. But we are joined by an exceptional, extra special guest. She has a promotion in her title. You formerly knew her as our senior women's correspondent, but this week she's also gained the title senior chicken correspondent. <laughs> Celine Oberholzer, how are you doing?
1: I'm good. You know, living my best country life right now.
0: And for those who aren't (laughs) yet on the inside, you have been sharing regular chicken updates, hen updates every morning on the socials.
1: That's right. I like to let them frolic around the yard while I drink my coffee in the morning. It's a very pleasant way to wake up.
0: And Alan... Schroeder, senior men's correspondent. I'm not even sure where you are anymore. You've been in Ozark land. You have been in Wisconsin. You've been in Cincinnati. Where are you coming to us from today?
2: Uh, I'm coming to us from today, uh, Fort Thomas, Kentucky. So it is just over the Ohio River from Cincinnati. You can literally see Cincinnati from the front door. Uh, yeah, went on like a nice three hour cruise today. And I'll be honest, like Kentucky is low key and amazing place to do some road riding. It's just like a bunch of back country roads, rolling hills.
0: You know, the trees are all turning color. Yeah, it's awesome. It's great here. I might stay. We've got a ton to talk about here and we should get going very quickly. Last week, I took a leadership training course at work. It was the first one that was ever offered. My boss is a listener of this show and I will tell him, Again, what I told them last week, it was phenomenal. It was so worth it. It was one of those experiences that you have and you go, hmm, should have done this about a couple of years ago, but I am so grateful that we did. And one of the questions that was posed to us in the course of the said leadership course was to answer one thing that you could do better to improve X. So instead of asking yourself, how can I make my job better? It's one thing that you can do to improve a small subset of that part of your job. And so I did a small anthropologic study and reached out to the fans of the show th- via social media on Instagram. And I said, what's one thing that we can do better to improve American road racing? By road racing, obviously road, criterium racing. I don't know, do we throw gravel in there? I mean, Battenkill was a gravel race before gravel was cool whatever we got a metric ton of responses to that and we've put them together into buckets we shared a lot of them on Instagram there's a in our highlights you can still see them they're they're there but we've divided this up into five different topics and then a speed round for the the oddball questions that just didn't fit perfectly in a different topic and we're going to run through these as quickly as possible and discuss them and give our honest and unfiltered take on all of them. So to start with is the one that's near and dear to my heart, which is money. We had multiple responses dealing with money and it starts with paying cyclists. This is something that we covered in the most recent episode. It's something that makes a heck of a lot of sense, but there are, of course, real limitations on that. There is only so much money to go around. And where do we divide the line between stable financial teams and financially important improvements for the bike racers? Alan, we'll start with you. When it comes down to paying cyclists, what are some of the important things for you that you would like to see in your cycling career being covered by your teams?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one, you know, like in the grand scheme of things, obviously paying the cyclists is something that we would all love to see. Um, it would really, I think, elevate the status of the sport in the U S to that next level, but the way you go about it is going to be really important. Like we've seen just throwing a bunch of money at like a big prize purse at the end of a race, really it's not going to accomplish a lot. A lot of times, you know, that money gets absorbed into the team and then goes who kn- who knows where. I'm lucky enough on CS Velo, we as a domestic elite team are super well supported. They, you know, pay for our travel, pay for all the race entry, of course, and like a lot of food and lodging when we're staying places. So uh, I think as like the first step, like, you know, maybe putting some sort of stipulation into being a domestic elite team or into you know trying to get teams up to that like UCI continental level that you know you have to have a certain budget to make sure that all of these expenses for your riders are being paid at minimum to ensure that there's not a huge financial burden just to show up at the race with your bike and and do the race
0: especially when we're going cross country getting on planes booking travel for ourselves and then hopefully getting reimbursed by our team i mean we've all heard stories of of the horror of the team running literally out of money by June or July, and then riders are just like, well, what the heck am I going to do now? I was supposed to go to Boise, but I can't afford that flight. I was supposed to go to Salt Lake. Celine, you did a little bit less road racing this year than you did the last year. You were a little bit more on the grav-grav side doing the gravel stuff. For you, looking at 2023 and beyond, how much stock are you putting in the fa- into having a salary of any kind for racing as opposed to earning your money through a classic day job?
1: I will say with State Bicycle Company, I've been very lucky to have honestly more support than I've had on my road teams previously. And that isn't to say I wasn't getting good support on my road teams. It's just to say that what State is able to do for a smaller roster is... Gonna be more significant than what a team can do for like, let's say 10 people. I'm gonna agree with Alan and say that there are certain things that just I don't wanna say are non-negotiable, but to a certain extent really need to be considered. And that is travel expenses, race entry fees, um, and lodging. And I'm gonna go a little bit deeper into that and say that there needs to be more preparation on the team end. Because, as we all know, things get more expensive closer to the date of something happening. And I don't see a lot of teams, as soon as race dates are announced, jumping at booking a certain number of flights, getting hotel rooms, and just making those preparations. And, of course, things change, especially in crit racing. People get injured. People get burned out. Um, Life happens. But there are refundable options for flights And hotels and Airbnbs. So just putting an extra ounce of energy into having preparation, I think would go a long way in saving teams money. Um, And of course, if you expect your athletes on the team to perform at a level that paid athletes perform at, then they should also be paid for the amount of time that they're preparing and taking out of their regular lives to perform at a certain expected level.
0: I mean the the stage race teams you're looking at athletes who literally train 20 to 30 hours a week for 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 the crit racers it's a little bit less but really not that much less. You know, we do hear about like the guys like yeah I can I'm doing it on 5 hours a week or I'm doing it on 10 hours a week. Those are physical specimens that I'm not aware of, you know, they've got something special going on one maybe
2: you know what like the crit racers lack in like total time spent training you know it more than makes up for in like the increased risk factor right like in a road race there's always there's always a chance that you're going to crash um but i would say compared to doing the whole crit circuit like it's so much lower so you know the balance of what like the time you're putting in in training, but then also what you're giving to the racing itself is is pretty equal on those fronts, I think.
1: Exactly. Going off of that, crit racing can take a lot more from you than it can give you. So in that respect, I think crit racing athletes although they might not train in duration quite as long as road racing athletes, they should certainly be compensated for what they put themselves through.
0: Celine, one thing that I know that you're passionate about is consistency and making sure that people are protected over a period of time. In American road racing and crit racing, it's a one-year contract. Do you feel that that's doing a service to the athletes?
1: Absolutely not. And I also think it's a disservice to the team because racing is so unpredictable and human beings are unpredictable. We get sick, we get injured, um, things just happen. And you can have one really great year, you can have one really awful year, you can have a couple of great years. But I think having a longer term vision is incredibly beneficial. I guess this kind of is similar to thinking further ahead for season preparations and things like that as well. Like it all just I think, would benefit from being more long-term rather than just a one-and-done kind of contract.
0: There was a conversation that I was a part of a few years ago, and I think it happened to deal with one of like, the local nonprofits here in Washington, D.C., and it was about the fear of a nonprofit or the fear of a smaller business spending money on people or marketing or advertising. And the response to that was, no, 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 you have to spend money in order to bring money in. A comment that was made to us was hiring people with corporate fundraising or corporate sponsorship experience and bringing them in to help raise money. That's what I think like the NACT really should do, invest its money, pull that money together and find people who can fundraise and administer. You know, Alan, what do you coming from a, a corporate background working, you know, as an engineer, you know, albeit at the worker bee level like me, you know, what do you feel about these organizations spending money to make money?
2: Well, I guess I want to like maybe back up just a second and like everything we're gonna talk about, I'm sort of operating under the assumption or presumption that, you know, we're talking about Bringing American cycling up to a professional level, you know, I'm not going to be so unrealistic as to say in the next five years, we're going to be the cycling version of the NBA or anything like that. But I think we can all agree that sort of our end goal is to have this be a legitimate professional sport. So with that, I think one thing that will eventually need to be abandoned is the idea that the best way for teams to bring money in is to be a nonprofit. You know, that's been the route so you can convince these big corporations, they'll give money to the team, and that will be sort of a tax write-off for them. Yeah, so I completely agree that we need to sort of leave that, like, idea or way of thinking and kind of, like, process in the past and move forward towards, you know, these are teams, they're their own, like, entities, they exist to obviously, like, support the writers, but also... Yeah, figure out a way to make money. Figure out a way to be sustainable within themselves. So yeah, like with that in mind, I totally agree that you know you have to spend money to make money. You have to spend money in order to find success. Um, and whether that's yeah, being able to hire, having the money to hire people with this corporate experience, you know, who are going to be the experts in finding these sponsorships, or whether it's yeah, just to to be able to pay the writers. I think it is the way forward.
0: So, Celine, you're on the the younger end of the spectrum. You know, just graduating from from college. Uh, you know, within the last two years, you've had to deal with the fact that as a college student, you didn't have a job. You weren't bringing in a large amount of income, but you were still trying your your best to become a better bike racer. So, there's three things that we can put together here. The first is. Lower entry for beginners, for races, that there is no need to charge $55 for a 30-minute criterium for a Cat 5. The second go going with that is the, the affordable equipment. I mean, we have seen over the course of this year you know, an arms race developing within bike racing. You know, how many bikes can you bring to a race in a different part of a country? Because your bike breaks, and for reasons that weren't spelled out to you beforehand, they don't have neutral bikes at that race, a la Tom Gibbons, and, you know, what Legion of Los Angeles has in comparison. But at the same time, having the Cat 3, the Cat 4, the amateur racers walking into their local bike shop and saying, don't you know who I am? I expect you to give me this. How do we, how do we balance all of that?
1: I mean, I was really lucky to get into cycling in Bloomington, Indiana, um, the home of the Little 500. And that race has generated an incredible community of cyclists And because it is an undergraduate cycling experience in a lot of ways, people outgrow their equipment and it gets handed back into the bike shops and then handed back into the new students. So it's like this beautiful, sustainable cycle in Bloomington, Indiana of athletes coming to the school, getting interested in cycling, having access to resources because previous athletes had outgrown their equipment and left it behind kind of thing. So yeah, I was really lucky that that's where I got into bike racing. Um, But I I know that the same cannot be said for every university.
0: I can tell you that in 2021 and 2022, I spent $10,000 on gravel bike racing. I have raced one gravel race in my life. I have spent $10,000 on the bike, the equipment, the shoes, the the flight to the, the training camp. You know, like I spent serious money on a sport that I did not know whether or not I would enjoy. And I just don't think that that is necessarily sustainable long run, especially when you look at like the top flight bikes for every manufacturer are now over $10,000. You know, and every masters racer is out there, you know, like competing on a $13,000 SL, you know, Tarmac S-Works or a special, or a Cannondale. Like it's just, it's just rushed forward so quickly from the $700 Le Monde that I bought in 2001 which is interesting because it blends us into topic number two, which is juniors and development racing. You know, obviously this year we saw the end of, of Lux, you know, as, as a team and Lux has been such a positive force in, in juniors bike racing, but you're also seeing all these regional development teams coming up through the ranks. And like my own club has a, a Devo squad that we fund. Alan, I want to start with you here, funding towards U twenty threes and juniors, and I'm gonna, uh, I'm just gonna devil's advocate whatever your response is here. So go, go ahead. Let me know what you think here.
2: Just about funding U twenty three teams?
0: Yeah, I mean, can we possibly disagree with that?
2: No, I mean, shoot, between like, you know, whether you're talking about a local sort of Devo team, like. The Boise Youth Racing Development, also known as the Birds, have literally produced world tour athletes, Tour to France, finishing racers. Yeah, Lux has been around forever, like countless. What's his Trek Segafredo bearded guy? Oh, man. Quinn Simmons? Quinn Simmons, yeah. Like, Quinn Simmons coming from Lux, his brother coming from Lux, and... Um, Hot Tubes has been around, I mean, longer than I have been aware of cycling. Yeah, I mean, again, it's just like if we want to continue to push cycling as a sport further and further into that professional level, then U23 and junior development is going to be a part of it. Even not from like a financial standpoint necessarily, but a lot of points that we're probably going to get into. Uh, In terms of just like being able to ride your bike and be confident on your bike and take good race lines and not, you know, chop corners like all of these things. The kind of the earlier you started and the more support you give when they're a kid, like the better outcomes you're going to see in racing.
0: Here's me devil's advocating it. And Celine, I want you to jump in after that to tell me I'm wrong. I love it when Celine tells me specifically that I'm wrong. Do we have any data? that suggests how much money is actually being funded into these junior development teams and what the impact is of junior development teams as opposed to something like NICA or a sports league that's geared towards teaching young riders. Because I want to see that data. I really do, because I think it would make a compelling argument if that exists. Or are we just putting money towards these juniors in development in, in U23 teams without those teams giving us a rationale or a reason why? Because it's so hard to argue against supporting kids and supporting young college athletes that you just can't. You can't do it without coming out looking like a jackass. So do we know how beneficial this money is, Celine, and, and where this money is going and what these guys, these teams are doing with it?
1: I do not feel qualified to answer this question. Well, I haven't seen data, but I can tell you as, I don't know, like, I just, I need a second to think.
0: (laughs) Well, so here's my point is that, like, the, the devil's advocate point is that juniors have parents who are capable of funding and supporting them, and now we're subsidizing the parents there's no economic um, data
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you right there because that's that's a thought that popped into my mind but then immediately there was a counter thought and it was we cannot make the assumption that everyone's parents can financially support their children in a sport as expensive as cycling and just because maybe there's a select few parents who could I don't think that's grounds for removing that support for everyone else. No, definitely not.
0: We had Bahati on the show three years ago, and he talked about taking... Kids from Compton and Watts from, you know, L.A. and taking them out of the city, putting them on bikes in the Angeles National Forest, for example. And it was the first time these kids had ever seen that much green or that much nature. And it was so fundamentally life changing for some of them, not because they're going to become the next Roshan Bahati, but because they they could enjoy health and activity outside of that small area that they lived in. And so that level of exposure was incredible and great. How much of our dollar that we push towards development goes towards that type of exposure, upbringing, involvement in the sport versus how much of it goes towards buying an S Works tarmac for 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 a team? Like, I think that the conversation needs to be more nuanced about what we mean when we say support juniors and devo.
2: Yeah. Totally 100%. I mean, I think getting into that is maybe more than like our allotted 10 minutes of like topic time, but I think that is a super important conversation um to have where like like you're saying there's kind of two two alleys of development here and you know I think like Bahati and Legion And a lot of a lot of people are starting to do that kind of more focused outreach and just getting more people on bikes, not necessarily for the the purpose of racing, but just so they can see like the improvement on their life that it will have. Yeah. I mean, again, like that, 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 that's an episode all on its own.
0: Let's talk Nika because it's it's basically a synopsis for what I really wish we could do more of. You know, Nikki Peterson, who's a coach at Source Endurance, is a big wig at NICA. And so, you know, I've had the opportunity to talk to her at length about it. One of the suggestions responses that we got was youth sports leagues within bike racing that are more similar to youth sport leagues elsewhere. We have this belief in road racing specifically that the courses need to be designed so that juniors can participate right alongside adults. You know, like my team's Carl Dolan race, we have a, you know, a junior's 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 race that takes time during the day with volunteers and EMS and police, and it's it's run on the exact same course as the adults. I don't know of any other sport within the popular sports where the youth league is run at the same time in the same location using the same resources as the adults. When I was swimming, it was up to 18 years old. Once you hit 18 years old, you you're you were a part of a different thing. So that there could be a specialized focus on that appropriate level of participation, opportunity, coaching, mentorship, officiating that was specific to younger folks. That's where NICA is. And I don't know, Alan, you, you ran, you were in track and field. Was there, were there adults in track and field right alongside high school Alan Schroeder?
2: (laughs) Uh, I mean, sometimes, yeah. You know, if I did like a, a summer track league, I would race as like when I was a 17 year old kid i was racing people that were in their late 20s but yeah i don't know i guess this is something that i haven't really thought about until now i think there's definitely like upsides and downsides where having all of the juniors racing you know earlier in the day or whatever but more or less at the same time as older racers really opens up the chance for like mentorship and for helping again like develop these riders But I think there is also a lot to be said for giving them their own league and just letting them compete against one another and sort of, you know, build their skills and learn that way without so much like, yeah, and without the intimidation factor, right, of some like 13 year old kid lining up against a 35 year old, 40 year old guy, like man, and being like, yeah, all right, go like, raise this person yeah so i think i mean and nika has been nothing but a success right like i think in idaho every nika weekend has over a thousand kids and that's in a fairly unpopulated state so yeah it feels like the interest is definitely there so maybe putting the time and effort into figuring out a league for juniors and, and u23s is would be worth our time
0: celine in ballet school when you were a kid Were there adults in the ballet
1: school with you? There were, I mean, the classes would be specified. So you were generally, it was almost like school, like you were put with your age group. Um, But then there were also open classes, and those were often on the weekend where anyone could go. Um, It'd be usually, I want to say most people were within the same age range, but. You could occasionally get a class with multiple ages in those open classes.
0: I think that's fascinating. And I'm, I'm glad that I did ask about your your particular sports because I it like blinders on for me. It was Little League Baseball and swimming. That, the, that was it. There were definitely no adult men playing Pony League in Naperville, Illinois. I'll, I'll just go ahead and say that. The third topic here, you know, we're we're approaching the halfway point. The third topic here is about quality control. And it's quality control not only for the events, but quality control for the racers. There were multiple people who commented about upgrade requirements and holding true to upgrade requirements. You know, I've in conversations that I've had privately with folks about what happens at the back of the Cat 1-2 field compared to what happens at the front of the Cat 1-2 field, there's a, a lot of people who are probably in a little bit over their head, but they're still Cat 1s. We've got this, a ama- or even 2s, we've got this amazing level of diversity within the field at Harlem or even within the field at Tulsa, where, you know, you've got legitimate... National caliber athletes right up against people who are probably more akin to me, who are just like, I want to see if I can do it. This is a, this is a, a, an experiential moment for me. You don't see that in baseball. You don't see that in basketball or football. There's not like this scrappy guy, you know, coming out there and being like on the special teams team. Like I want to see how good I can be against this, you know, top specimen punt returner sort of thing. Alan, you have been much more involved than I have in the men's racing. Do you see a quality control issue with who's lining up at these American Crit Cup races or USA Crit Cup races?
2: <laughs> uh Man, I mean, you know, it, it, it's hard to say no, but also like that is such like a deep rooted topic like there's so much that goes into like how a person works their way up to a cat one from like you know what are the quality of the races that they're doing who's the one actually like in charge of going through and like checking that all of these points they say they have are legit and like all of this so for the purpose of this conversation i'm going to ignore all that and say that again if we're looking at elevating the sport to a professional level at some point there's going to need to be a separation between guys who get their cat one, two and just want to like race Tulsa because it's Tulsa. And then the, the professional teams who are racing Tulsa to win, because like we saw this year, like when those two mix it's, I mean, I don't want to say chaos necessarily, but when, when you're in it, it feels like chaos. And you know, the reality is like you're, and again, I don't want to like necessarily use weekend warrior because in some ways it's very much what I am. But when you mix these two, there is such a big difference in not only fitness, but just overall ability that, you know, it, it, it's, it it causes problems for sure.
0: I was going to say the race for you mentally moves slower than it does for me because I have this narrow bandwidth of margin for error you've got a larger one because you you have more experience and you are fitter than I am and you recover better because you're half my age I want to race with you but I'm okay not and I don't know if I'm alone
2: yeah and I think that's where we're coming to like sort of this this crux point where the novelty of cycling is the fact that you can have like non-professionals racing with you know quote unquote professionals but I think people are ready to sort of like start separating them a little bit further, um, both to increase safety as well as increase, you know, prestige.
0: Celine, on the women's side, the fields are smaller, generally speaking. They're not 135 women on, you know, 1K course as regularly as there are in men. It's racing. Uh, Tulsa is a huge exception to that. But you have been on record as saying that a lot of the crashes that you saw last year in 2021 were completely unnecessary and based on just sloppiness. Do you think that there is a quality control problem?
1: Yes, but there's so much more to it. Like seeing the comment about cat one upgrade quality control, like, yeah, there's the point system and you see what happens on a sheet of paper, but I just have so many thoughts. I'm trying to organize them in the best way to say this in a way that my thoughts will be easy to follow. But I'm just thinking based on the opportunities of the races that are available to women, a lot of people on the local level are in small fields. And even in these small fields, there might be one athlete who's way stronger than everyone and just goes off the front and wins. And on paper to USAC, they're winning. And so perhaps that qualifies them on paper to be a Cat 1, but then you put them in a bunch of experienced riders from all over the country and they don't know what they're doing. I feel like there has to be more, not necessarily that the current Cat 1 upgrade standards are controlled, but maybe that there needs to be some kind of a change. And not necessarily that people have to win from a sprint or they have to win from being off the front or whatever, but I feel like there needs to be more attention to detail in the way that people are racing. And I don't know if that's even possible, like if it would be too complicated at that point, but yeah, there's just so many factors to take into consideration because I also know I'm thinking also like riders like Veronica Ewers though, we also need to consider the opposite end of the spectrum because if quality control is taken too seriously, then someone like Veronica probably wouldn't have been at the Tour de France this year.
0: I am going to throw down a challenge to our friends at Source Endurance, and this will cover one of the responses. I want to see Source Endurance put together a Criterium Racing Clinic in 2023. I want to see them put together a Criterium Racing Clinic drawing from incredible athletes who they coach To come to a location, say Tulsa, whatever it happens to be, the week before Tulsa, and put on a camp teaching people the basics of safe criterium racing. Pack racing, cornering, learning to identify what road hazards are there before you even get into the road hazard, and also how to deal with what happens when you don't do things right. What happens when the line you want isn't there.
1: Well, I feel like that's teaching decision-making under exertion, (laughs) which is something that I think all athletes can struggle with. The main reason why all of those crashes that happened last year and this year, from the outside, I can say, and even from being in the race, I can say they were unnecessary because in my mind, the decision that I would have made would have been different, but Ultimately, someone's making a decision, they're making a risk assessment in a split second, and sometimes it's just wrong. Um, Either they're overestimating their abilities or they're overestimating the abilities of the people around them. But there's some sort of a disconnect between what they see happening, what is actually happening, and what they think they can accomplish in that moment. I don't know how you would teach that, though.
0: Well, I know one way that you could potentially teach it, and that is something that's near and dear to your heart, Celine. Local training races, the driveway, you are the queen of the driveway. (laughs) Why are these local training races so important?
1: Oh my gosh, there's so many reasons. Um, But I would say fundamentally the frequency is what makes it so beneficial because there isn't this all this wind up for one event. It happens every week for months. So if you want to try something out and test your abilities, you can, because no matter what happens, there's still next week. So if it goes wrong, it really doesn't matter. Um, and you can learn in that moment, have a week to reassess and try again the following week. And it takes a lot of pressure off and just gives so many opportunities for people to learn week after week.
0: The cha- I want to throw a challenge down again. Chris Tolley, come on the show. Tell us about the driveway. Give us all of your thoughts unfiltered. You are invited cordially to attend. Alan, what's your thought here?
2: Well, he'll probably be able to touch on my thought better than I can. But I was just gonna say, like, it's really not even that much work to put together like a weekly crit night series. Um, in Boise, we have we call them Swica Crits because it's Southwest Idaho Cycling Association, Swica for short, um, and we literally just do it in a parking lot. But we do it, you know, like pretty much every week. Some weeks are off. Just lay down some cones in a parking lot and, yeah, people sign up on Bike Ridge, show up. And like Selene said, you get to do it every week. So that consistency of, like, if you make a mistake one week, you do it the next week, it really, yeah, like really works on your skills, really shows you how to race. Um, yeah, so easy, easy to set up if you have a small group of people super fun.
0: So let's move to topic four, which is respect and the racing environment. And one of the ones that, that really gets deep into my, into my, I don't know, annoying me phase of life is toxic masculinity. And especially when toxic masculinity is expressed towards women, minorities, or, or children. You know the uh, the the classic masters man trying to tell a pro woman how to race her bike because he's doing it. I don't know like we've seen multiple examples throughout you know social media, our friends, the course of this year, our own observations about this toxic masculinity in our sport celine. Uh, I don't want to stereotype here, but I'm fairly confident that you've been on the receiving end of unnecessary attention from men on group rides or at races or something of that nature.
1: Yeah, 100 (laughs) percent. Yeah.
0: How do you deal? How do you positively deal with it?
1: Um, I'm usually pretty blunt. And if I'm receiving unwanted attention, I I guess it depends on the situation. Um, but I generally will just make some sort of a comment about how this is unnecessary and not in anyone's best interest to be happening. And then I will go find some female friends and form a little security pack.
0: <laughs> you, you, you know, that's something that I've heard from other people is about the the having a safe space within a race or with a group uh ride situation and it's i i've never had i've never actively sought that out within the confines of any sort of bike racing that i have done so it's a blind spot for me but i know it's something in speaking to transgender athletes or LGBTQ athletes or anybody who could find themselves in a minority position, that a race having a safe location for people to 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 warm up or to set up their equipment or for a, a, a standing group ride to have a, a you know a safe environment for people to for people of all different walks of life to be a part of it, like it's easy to say that. It's hard to do.
1: Well, I feel like it's simpler than it sounds because I just had the thought when I see it happening to someone else, I respond way more viciously than when it's happening to me. And I think that might just be, I don't know, like when it's happening to you, you there's still for whatever reason, just you want to be polite and not hurt their feelings. And I don't know. but then But then when it's happening to someone else, I get like protective and I'm, I'm almost like, I could see myself being violent. (laughs) But, and not that I would ever be violent. But there's like, there's that rage that like, how could someone do this to someone else? Um, And I think that that just indicates that we do need to just step in for each other. And if there isn't a safe space, make one. Um, Stand up for someone if you see something happening. And even if you don't know who they are, just let them know you're there for them.
0: I'm going to circle back to that in a second because I've I've been given some professional advice on how to do that. Alan, you are on a team, CS Velo, where every time we've spoken about team management, it is Kurt and Meredith. Kurt and Meredith, the, the the tandem owners of the organization are always discussed together. And it's the Meredith part that I want to talk about because one of the responses was hire more women. End of story. You know, you have a woman owner who's a part of your organization. I know of two women who are professional race directors, only two women who are professional race directors. I know of some of the women's teams that have women as their owners and leaders, but it is still a small number. Riding on CS Velo, riding with Meredith and with Kurt, do you see a reason why we shouldn't have more women involved in this sport and in the leadership function, in the owner function?
2: no absolutely not i mean meredith is as focused and as driven to yeah like support the team and push the team as any of us that are on the team um yeah i mean she plays as big of a role in that team as any of us do and yeah like i don't know it's 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 easy to say that the team would not exist without her and without kurt (laughs) yeah man i don't know like Absolutely, there's no reason that more women shouldn't be involved. I think the sport as a whole would be wildly improved if there were. I mean, it's just like the more perspectives you can have on any situation, whether it's a positive one, whether it's a problem to be solved, it's it's, it's only going to improve things that has been you know scientifically shown in many many different ways. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think it's absolutely something we we need.
0: So there was an incident at Harlem this year at the crit in June. And it was a it was a heinous and ugly incident in which transphobic slurs were hurled at one of the athletes in one of the races by a master's bike racer. The guy was kind enough to leave his team jersey and number on while he was hurling these transphobic slurs. So we do know who he is. I wasn't actually physically present when this was happening I was a couple hundred meters away I didn't hear it but my wife was present and other people were present for this and it's regrettably a situation that is going to happen again and again and again whether it's at it's at trans or bi- non-binary individuals LGBTQ LGB uh you know athletes uh athletes of color anything there it's just it's just this awful part of American history that we're living in right now, where people feel the need to bring their hate and direct it at people who don't have anything to do with them. And, you know, there's a variety of ways that one can approach this and approach a problem where somebody is verbally abusing somebody in a race uh, either before or after or during the race. And there's gotta be something to do because this person had his number on, we were able to report him to safe sports. That is 100% the appropriate place to go and start. There is no space in this sport for hatred. And if somebody is going to bring it into this sport, they need to be reported to the people who've got the power and the capacity to do something about it. But that doesn't stop the fact that the hate that he spewed forth fundamentally and irrevocably damaged the person who was receiving that message. The rider heard it. It traumatized the rider and it was not the first time that that has happened to that rider so the question is what do we the allies and supporters of this wonderful broad community do in order to do what we need to do to protect these athletes you know initially my response would to that situation was going to be i'm six foot tall and 170 pounds i have the moral authority along with everybody else, regardless of their height, size, weight, or dimensions, to tell that person to shut the living fuck up that there is no place in this world for his ignorant, intolerant, transphobic statements. I could also have politely told him that these decisions about who can participate in this race are created by medical experts who are internationally recognized, and they come down from people above. So if he wanted to, he could take his WebMD research, challenge that, position with the medical scientists but I feel like that would not be something that would be necessarily positively received at that moment and I went to a PhD psychologist who specializes in trauma and support groups who has a uh, a gay child and has worked with other adults who have gay children in ways to positively support their children in this world that we live in and her response to me was Do not confront violence with violence. Do not confront hate with hate. Confront his hate-filled voice with your chorus of support. So instead of responding directly to him, you respond to the athlete being challenged. You cheer louder for the athlete being challenged than his voice is. You shut him up, you marginalize him, you push him to the corner as far away as you possibly can be until one day he and all of the people like him realize that they are on the losing side of history or they are just gone. End of story. That is my message. Safe sport is the place for you to go. If you are confronted with a situation in a race, where there are licensed people involved, you know, b- support those people around you. Okay, I'm going to pause, get off of my soapbox here, and now we're going to talk about uh, broadcast media and about what we can do better to share the message of our sport. And I wanted to start with the age-old question. How are we doing on media? in 2022 was it better than 2021 alan
2: i mean i would say yes i feel that the acc did like uh six and a half maybe seven out of ten on the live streams obviously one of them got cut completely rochester was unfortunately canceled but yeah, I would say the media coverage for the crits that happened were pretty were pretty awesome. The introduction of the drone cam footage was super rad. Uh, outside of that, you know, Walmart sort of stepped in for Joe Martin and put up a bunch of money f- to, it sounded like it was going to be all of the stages, but got cut to just the crit either way. I feel like headed in the right direction, you know, it would be awesome to and I think this was actually something that was sent in to be able to live stream our stage races. I think there is enough interest in the races that are happening that people want to watch them and watch more than just the crit. But yeah, I guess for for did we improve on 2021?
0: Yeah. So, Celine, you know, we run up against the age old problem of money. All these things cost money. Brad Soner, Kristen Armstrong, you know Daniel Holloway, Ellen Noble, Rassam Bahati, you know, all of these, Frankie Andreu, all of these professionals who are doing the broadcasting deserve the salary that they are being paid. All of the people who are running the tech and the equipment, the cameras, the feeds, all of them deserve to get paid. They are doing a professional job. Do you know, for example, how much it costs for one day to run an ACC quality level broadcast? How much do you think that that cost this year?
1: For one day? Yeah. Oof. Including like setup, teardown. tear down. <laughs> Assuming they paid everyone for announcing. Um, I'm going to go with twenty five thousand dollars.
0: What about you, Alan? What do you think? Okay, well,
2: I have the insider knowledge of having ridden with the guy who is in charge of Boise Twilight. So he told me the figure. It's so much more than I thought it was. Like $25,000 sounds like a lot, but it is so much more than that.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> I was told from somebody who was involved, so they knew the numbers, that it was somewhere closer to sixty five dollars to $70,000 to run a feed from one of those races.
2: Yeah, he told me $75,000 for one night of CRIT streaming.
0: And so multiply that out by 10 during the course of the year. I don't know if you get a bulk discount, you know, but you're looking at a million dollars for close to a million dollars, $750,000 for that level of production. We want to make it better. You know, people want to see live data. They want to see onboard video like the Clever Cam You know, they want to see things like that, but this all costs money. The beauty is, and I think Alan undersold it. the level of improvement from 2021 to 2022 was dramatic. You know, having two broadcasters was amazing. Having Daniel Holloway just throwing shade left and right at bad decisions and also praising the good ones was incredible. Like, that level of knowledge, just getting thrown into our races was wonderful. But... As with everything else in the world, this stuff costs money and Alan, I think you're you're 1000% right. Like we got to have a 5-year plan, a 10-year plan. This isn't next year. How do we encourage people to stay the course? Man, I don't know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I guess how, how do you mean st- like how do we encourage people to continue to like push for having everything be live streamed?
0: Yeah. I mean, like, but at the same time, being comfortable with what we have right now and not losing fans. Mm -hmm.
2: I mean, in some ways, I think it goes back to our first topic with money and like you got to have like data on like how many people are watching, like where are they watching from? How much time are they spending watching the stream? So then you can take that and use that to go out and like sell ads or get sponsors for the stream because you have numbers to show them that like, if you give us this money, we'll put your ad in between races, it'll be on the side, like you will see return on investment in this, which I think is important considering like we got to watch all of these races for free, you know, with the exception of the one or two that end up on GCN or flow bikes, like all of the ACC races were totally free to watch, which is insane, especially now that we know how much it costs to put them on.
0: Can we talk about meme accounts? Since we're talking about media. I love
1: meme accounts. <laughs> I
0: I love meme accounts, too. But I think sometimes meme accounts go too far. You know, I can see the positive, funny meme accounts uh, like Office Park Crits, you know, classic, good, lighthearted humor. But then there are the meme accounts that that really just have this undercurrent of toxicity that you would never say to somebody to their face. The bike industry in the bike world needs somebody to hold them to account, for sure. There is a lot of stupidity and, and, like... (laughs) I can can just think of bikes that have recently been announced that are the ugliest things that I've ever seen. Maybe that should be held to account.
1: Are we talking about meme accounts or are we talking about the comment sections? Sometimes it's the meme account. You
0: can't control comment sections unless you just turn them off. You know, never read the comments. But, like the meme account Celine you're you love meme accounts i know it
1: i do i'm struggling to recall a meme that i thought went too far but maybe i'm my algorithm has just found my perfect meme level and that's all i see uh
2: yeah i mean i definitely have mixed <clears throat> feelings on that i genuinely have like received a lot of <laughs> news through the memes in like a positive way but They also tend to target like specific people more often than not or more often than any other. And, you know, that can definitely be problematic. But I don't know. At the end of the day, I feel like it's a rough world out there and people like need a place to go and like unwind and not take things too seriously. And for the most part, I would say like these meme accounts provide that in like a cycling context. So I also am generally pro meme account.
0: One of the accounts that I'm thinking of is the uh, one that started up after Indy. It was the Kendall Ryan Cornering Clinic meme account.
1: Oh, boy. <laughs> I was unaware of this account.
0: Yeah, she had, she had made a comment post-race at Salt Lake City, I think it was, where she, you know, in her euphoria of winning that race in a dramatic fashion had said that we had to put a clinic on on bike racing or cornering. And then at Indy, she and her sister crashed going into the final corner in a what is more than like 120 degree corner and went down. You know, Kendall had a concussion as a result of that. And both of them, both her and Alexis took the next day of racing off. But somebody still felt the need to make a Kendall Ryan cornering clinic meme and like a meme account. And it was just like, yeah, it's it, it it it's just directed at one person. It's just like needling right down into one person's soul and like there's no other point for that account. I do have to give her credit. She did turn it around and make a pretty funny comment about like, "Oh wow, now I've got this meme account, maybe I can finally get the blue tick from Instagram for being an influencer because somebody's making fun of me at that level." <laughs> I love World Famous Montrose, the World Famous Montrose Ride meme account. It's great. I think it's funny. Gas Station Foods is typically very funny. And like Bryant Park memes is funny. Like there, there's a lot of good ones that throw good humor, but like sometimes, sometimes it's a little personal.
1: Well, is it only going too far if the recipient is offended by it? Because if Kendall thought it was funny, then wouldn't that make it more amusing rather than hurtful.
2: Well, I mean, that's also like a pretty slippery slope, right? Like it's easy to outwardly be like, oh, haha, like this is funny. But inwardly, like it's doing a little bit of damage, uh, emotional damage, maybe.
1: Yeah, but like if your friend, let's say your friend trips and falls, I would laugh until knowing that they were injured. But if they also started laughing and they were like, oh, that was so silly, then it would make me feel okay about laughing. Do you know what I mean? Is it, is this the same situation or is it different?
2: Well, it's different because it's not like your friend. It's like, if there was a person just like walking behind you, like 10 feet behind you. And every time they fall over, they like not only laugh, but then like shout about it to everybody else that's around. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Like again, I think Internet bullying is a very real thing and can get, like, really dark really quickly. But we also can't just, like, umbrella meme accounts into saying that they're all like that and all doing that thing.
0: In the early nineteen hundreds, like, nineteen 1910, 1920, the, the Supreme Court confronted a lot of hate speech cases. You know, Congress shall pass no law affecting the freedom of speech. I mean, it's a pretty clear and easy statement within the Bill of Rights. Uh, You know, therefore, nobody should be able to say what you can or cannot say. Uh, The reality is we have all sorts of regulations on speech. You can't say fire in a crowded theater. It's just terrible. But there was also this. Yeah. And yeah, (laughs) that's the modern version, I guess. Uh, But there were all these laws directed at not saying things that offended people, you know, or not saying things that were hate filled and, and the Supreme Court, you know, did its damnedest to try to walk that fine line, but there was this famous line from one of the cases about statements that cannot be made to another person without a disarming smile being included, something to that effect. And, like, if I'm looking at you face-to-face and I make a comment and you can tell that I'm joking— because we're in a room together and you can see my smile and you can see the wink in my eye and the mannerism of my body, then it's one thing. But that's not Instagram, that's not TikTok, that's not Snapchat, you know, Facebook or whatever, Twitter, uh, the sewer that it is. You know, like I think Alan is right. And Celine, I think you're right that you can't some of these are great, some of these are funny, but you can't paint in too broad a brush. And there goes my uh, my Supreme Court reference for the show. So I, uh, we we should probably move on to <laughs> yeah to the speed round. So we have one, two, three, four, five. I'm gonna put six another one in there because I I love a good controversy, and we'll save that for the last one. First one, and and we'll just go one at a time. Alan, you answer the first one. Celine answers the second one. Third one goes back to Alan. And, you know, I'm gonna keep my opinions to myself because I speak too much as is. Alan, more doping control. Do we need more doping control in crit racing? Man, I mean,
2: I don't know how much doping control there is now. I've never been controlled for dope. But yeah, I mean,
0: sure, I don't, I guess that'll help. Celine, pro series races, so ACC, crit, NCL, whatever it happens to be, one number consistently throughout the entire course of the season.
1: I love that idea. And actually, Driveway has been doing that. And it's been amazing. And they have these really like high-quality cloth numbers, so you can even wash the numbers. Um, so I think, yeah, the Pro Series should definitely, I don't know, talk to the Driveway and see what they're doing right, because they're doing a lot right. That'll
2: also increase sustainability and just, like, climate awareness, IMO.
1: Yeah. And I don't know, if, if you have you develop a fan base, they know what your number is, which is pretty awesome. And then that can become a whole thing of its own. Um, Yeah. And definitely not having to print out a number and have hundreds of little paper numbers that everyone hates anyway and are way too big for all the women's racers or smaller male racers seems like a good problem to solve.
0: So Alan, one response that we got, should crit racing just be cross? I mean...
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Uh, perhaps unpopular opinion. Crits are just the road version version of cyclocross only you never have to get off your bike. So what's even the
0: point?
1: I mean, sometimes you have to get off your bike,
0: (laughs) no barriers to hop. Okay. So going on number four races in town centers, Celine pro con you like that?
1: Yes. Yes. Love the idea. Um, as racers, you have immediate (laughs) access to food after the race Um, For photographers, it's exciting because there's a lot happening. For spectators, it's exciting because there's a lot happening. You can literally have your dinner and watch a bike race at the same time. You don't have to do both in two very different places. It's generally a more attractive part of town. There's only pros.
0: Uh, Alan, we'll go back to you for the next one here. Teams, bringing back the old rule, teams must put on a race in order to be a team.
2: Uh, Yeah, I'm definitely pro this rule. I'm also pro letting teams kind of like collab on that. I mean, as much as it feels like there's not a ton of racing going on, the race calendar does fill up quick. So yeah, to keep things simple, teams put on races, probably going to be a fundraiser, collab with other teams, all good stuff.
0: And the final question, and this is the big one, because I, 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 so both of you get to answer, but Celine, you go first. So you get the surprise
1: don't oh,
0: no. Yeah. <laughs> You're looking through the list trying to figure out which one I haven't asked. <laughs> one jersey to rule them all. Only one national champ.
1: I mean, the women have already been doing that. So, yeah, I don't <laughs> see why the men shouldn't. Can't argue with that.
2: Yeah. I mean, why do we have pro like pro Nats, elite Nats? Like, just get rid of it. One pro national championship jersey. Call it good. There's no point in having a pro race and an elite race where all the people in the elite race were also in the pro race.
0: We have made it to the end of the 100th episode.
1: That's awesome. Oh, damn. Really? Of
0: a show about Criterium Racing.
1: That's How crazy. many hours is that of <laughs> us just rambling?
0: <laughs> 100 episodes of talking about crit racing. Guys, thank you so much for being a part of this wonderful journey. Uh And Thank you for helping break down these wonderful responses.
2: Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening to 100 Episodes.
0: Thank you for joining us in another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows. Go to WideAnglePodium.com to find out more about the full bevy of shows, and please become a subscriber and help financially support this content creator-owned effort. Today's show was edited by me, but it was written and produced by you guys, by the fans, by the people who have seen us through for the last 100 episodes, and we can't thank you enough for being there with us, for us and right next to us throughout this whole entire experience. We will be back in three weeks, hopefully right after Thanksgiving, with a new episode featuring Zach Allison and Adam Mills of Source Endurance, where we talk about whether or not we've made it to the point where this is a professional sport in the United States, and what it will take to get us there if we're not there already. So join us here again next time for more stories from our Criterium Nation.